Could you please stand for a reading of God's Word? Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you. You can be seated. Thanks, Craig. Good morning, Redemption Church. So good to see you all. Well, welcome. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. And I told first service this, but um, it was really exciting. Right before I came up, I found 10 bucks in one of my pockets, which is just a good, good sign. It's going to be a good day. I don't know when the last time I wore these pants was, but apparently there was 10 bucks that I put in there. All right. I didn't need it to now. So lunch is on me. Uh, 10 bucks. All right. So Pastor Frank just got back from a trip to camp, which he does every year. Uh, I haven't heard how it went, but he's smiling today, so uh, it must have gone well. Um, and happy Memorial Day weekend, too. I hope you're able to have some fun tomorrow and celebrate as we remember the soldiers and those who serve and who have served and are serving. And I'll say there were some elements in our service today to kind of help you as a church process some of the news this week and over the last few weeks. And we have this rhythm as a church where every Sunday we pray from 8.30 to 8.45. And this morning, Malia led our time and we were able to read through a liturgy of grief to kind of help us begin to process those things. So just open invitation if you're ever free from 8.30 to 8.45 and you want to come pray. We do it right here in the sanctuary. Uh, it's a quick time, but a really important time, and it's not just for our staff. It's for, for everyone to come, so we'd love to have you join us for that as well. All right, so if last week when Pastor Tyler Thompson spoke, he went through verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3. If those verses are the picture of the Christian's life in Christ and the future hope that awaits those, then the verses that we'll cover today, and we've got quite a few to get through, are, you can think of that as the practical living out of that picture. The how to the what or the why. Why are we here? What are we doing? This is some of the how. So you can expect a, a really practical glimpse from Paul into how this plays out. Let me pray for us before I get too much farther. Jesus, thank you for this moment that we have set aside. And you know I've spent hours preparing for this, but for everyone here that has carved this moment out of their week to worship you, to um, learn from your word, God, I pray that you would shape us, Holy Spirit, into your people today. That you would show us, in the scripture reading, we, we read some amazing verses about how to put on these things of you, God. So I pray that you'd show us, Lord, how to do that this week. Maybe we'd walk away with some understanding of how to begin doing this great work in light of the great work that you have done for us, Jesus. So we pray that you'd be glorified in all that's said up here. And if anything's not from you, God, let it be forgotten so quickly because it's your word and your spirit that changes people, that motivates people, and so we, we thank you for your spirit, and we pray more of you, God, less of me, less of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Greta, in school, one of my favorite uh, subjects to study was anything related to astronomy. It's just fascinating to think about the universe, the scale of it, how it works, what's out there. I think it was only two weeks ago I learned we have images of the surface of Venus, 
which is just fascinating. I was telling my kids, you know, a very few selective of people in man's history have been able to see these pictures that we can look at. How crazy is that? I remember growing up, or maybe I just went to a bad school, but I didn't know that we had those pictures. I thought we just knew it was cloud covered and that was it, but we sent a thing there and it took pictures, it's crazy. Anyway, our knowledge of the universe as we know it came through little progressive leaps in understanding. And it came through observing the way things worked. And by observing, we were able to measure and calculate and learn more about how that works. The way that the planets orbit, the fact that it's not a perfect circle, it's a kind of an oval shape, came through observing. And it went against entirely the majority thinking of the time, which was that the Earth was the center of the universe and everything else revolved around that which kind of makes sense as you look up at night and you see things rotating around us. Well, they kind of make sense. But we learned through observation that the, that the universe didn't work like that. And here, I'll give you an example. In Genesis 1, when Moses writes, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. When we think of, when we hear that phrase, the earth, my mind pictures right away the blue marble of the earth. But Moses would have had no concept of that when he wrote it. What he describes is God, in the beginning, God made everything that's above me and the earth, everything that's below me. So his concept was entirely different. And we have the privilege of all the gained information that came over the years. And I think that's part of what Paul the writer of our passage here today is giving us. He's giving us some tools to help us observe the path of our lives. And I think that's what God would give us this morning is a glimpse of the path that our lives follow to learn more about that. And we need to hear this morning, church, that we are not the center of our universe. Christ is. That's where Christ belongs. We need God's word today to help us discern what path we're on and how to keep on the right one. So like I said, we can expect today some practical explanation of what Paul means here to live out the Christian life. So we'll start by reading the first part of verse 5. Let's read that together. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So whenever we see a therefore, we got to go back, right? Because Paul is mid-thought here. He's mid-thought. His argument is flowing from verses 1 through 4 and even earlier. He's asking us to put to death what's earthly in us because Christ is in us. And because our glorious future with him awaits. And because that's true, since that's a reality, therefore we must put to death what is earthly in us. Now, if it sounds like Paul's using very strong language here, it's because he is. Put to death what is earthly in you. Not even a one-time thing, but the way it's written suggests a one-time and continually. We are to be putting to death these things that are earthly in us. So what are those earthly things? Let's read on. Verse 5, the whole thing. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Isn't that interesting that he goes there? This is where, this is one of those weeks I wish I was more of a fire and brimstone kind of a, kind of a preacher. I just, I don't have the voice for it and I don't have the charisma for it. I just, it's not gonna happen. But, but this is pretty fire and brimstone here. He's going for it. And I think as Christians, we ought to dive into this list that Paul gives us and consider and weigh those things. So when Paul says sexual immorality, you might have heard this before, the Greek word there is porneia, and it's an umbrella term that means any sexual activity outside of the covenant of a biblical marriage. That's what he's describing. To put off any sexual activity outside of a Christian marriage from us. But he doesn't, he goes on, he goes more than that. Not just sexual acts outside of a biblical marriage. He gives four more words to describe not just our actions, but what about our thoughts? What about our desires? 
What about wanting what's not ours, that covetousness language? Describes them as an idol. Remember, an idol is anything that we worship other than God. What we put at the center of our universe where Christ belongs. We've got it out of order, he's saying. And he talks more about how to do this work in a moment. But verse 6 tells us exactly what we ought to do. Why we ought to do the hard work of putting these things to death in us. What's he say in verse 6? Why? Because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Whew. That should kind of make us, whoa, the wrath of God is coming. Now, that is pretty fire and brimstone. But God's wrath is an often misunderstood attribute of his character that we ought to be thankful for. We ought to be thankful for God's wrath. Now, one of my seminary professors, Dr. Wayne Grudem, talks about this in a class I took with him, that God's wrath is one of his attributes and that it is something we should be thankful for. Why? Well, church, don't you want desperately the wrath of God to fall against the evil in the world that we see? I do. I'm counting on the wrath of God to come against the evil that I see in the world. That's the only way I can process that kind of evil, is to pray for the wrath of God done against the evil and for the peace and hope that also comes from God on all those who suffer. God's wrath is an active thing. It goes against evil in the world, but God's wrath you can think of as also passive. Sometimes God allows you to bear the consequences of sin, and that is his wrath. He surrenders you over to the consequences of those sins. He's described for you as a good father, the way that you ought to live, and if we choose the other path, he goes, so be it. That's a wrathful act. God's wrath is coming for all the evil that exists in the world, but the evil, church, you and I both know this, it's in us too. God's wrath is coming for us and for those who practice this kind of sexual immorality that Paul describes and much more. But we can't stop there, church. We must replace those thoughts, those actions, with something greater. Paul goes on in verse 7 of chapter 3. Let's read 7 through 9. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. And he gives us another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So Paul gives us this idea now of putting off and putting on. We can't just put off. We also must put on. And this is a rich theme echoed in all of Scripture. So here's, and it's full of meaning, here's three ways you can think about this putting off clothing kind of analogy in Colossians 3. One, you can think of it as the great laundry exchange. And I've listed out some of the Scriptures where I think you can see that theme. From Job to the book of Psalms, Isaiah, and more all talk about our sin as dirty clothes. Dirty clothes that we wear. And the righteousness of Christ as the clean robe that we ought to wear. The great exchange, that's a theological term, meaning God takes our sin and our brokenness and gives us instead his righteousness, which is kind of a bum deal for him, but it's a good deal for us. The great laundry exchange. Romans 13 unpacks the same argument. It says in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That, what else could that be? He's saying, literally, put Jesus on yourself, making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Another way to think about this analogy in Colossians 3 is that we are living out the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. Pastor Tyler talked a bit about this last week. Some, and notice the language flow in our verses so far. I think you'll start to see this pattern a little more. There's tension to what Paul thinks is happening versus what's already happened versus what will happen 
There's tension and overlap with all of those. In verse 5, he says, put to death what is earthly in you. It's there now. Verse 7, he says, in these you once walked. That's past now. You used to walk in those. You were living in them. Verse 8, now you must put them away. Something you need to do. It's future now. And then in 9 and 10, he says, you have put off the old self and you have put on the new self. How can those work? The kingdom of God is a present reality now and will be fully to come. As, as Pastor Tyler talked about last week, unpacking that very idea. A third way you can think about this is as an inheritance given. In the ancient Near East and in some biblical texts, being either given a coat or being stripped of one was seen as impacting your inheritance, your family inheritance. To be stripped of your father's robe would be to be stripped of your inheritance from your father. To be given a robe, like Genesis 37 with Joseph, he's given that robe. I wish I knew exactly what it looked like. Just colorful robe would be to symbolically be given the right of the inheritance. That's part of what upset his brother so much. So think about this. Then to be stripped of the old clothes of sin is to be removed from its inheritance of death. And to be given the robes of Christ is to share in his inheritance of eternal resurrected life. So... What are we putting off? What is earthly in us? He gives us that list in verse 6 and now more in verse 8. Here's what I'll say. This list is worth some careful consideration this week, church. There's no way I could list out all the implications for these because it's a big list. It's a big list, but here's some things to think about. What does it mean for you to put away all anger? Does anger sit on the throne of your heart? What does it look like to take steps to put that off of you instead? What about slander? How do you speak of others? What does Paul mean here by obscene talk? Is he speaking only of our agreed upon list of words that we say these are curse words? Or is he getting at something deeper that's shown in your heart when you use that kind of language? Uh, Pastor Frank was reminding me after this first service uh, that in this text, the reason that he eventually says, be thankful, uh, that we'll get to in a minute, is that thankfulness, if you think about it, is an antidote to a lot of this list. How can you slander someone and be thankful at the same time? How can you have obscene talk and be thankful? Right. So being thankful is another thing to consider. Now, what about all sexual immorality? What does that look like? In Matthew 5, remember that talking about lust, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what? Pluck it out. <laughs> wow, okay. It's better to enter the kingdom of God without that than for that to bring you out of the kingdom of God. Now, he wasn't talking just about radical amputation or dismemberment or something like that, but he was illustrating how radical we need to be in dealing with sin. We need to be that radical in dealing with sin. I'll say it this way. Maybe this will help. If your phone causes you to sin, cut it out. Get rid of it. Throw it in the garbage. Isn't it better to have no smartphone? People have done it, right, for many years. We've gone on without it. Isn't it better to go without that than to have that compromise your entrance into the kingdom or draw you into sin over and over and over? Isn't it better? I think we need to confess our sin. Remember, we just finished the Gospel of John before this, and it, one of the major themes in there was darkness and light. And the only way to get from darkness to light is to bring your sin into the light, the exposing light of God. We need to confess our sin, bring it to the light, and in that, we'll put our sin off of us. We have to prayerfully consider. We have to think deeply about these things and ask the Spirit to help us 
God, how do I obey your command here to put these things off? But again, we can't stop at verse 8. We often do. We think, well, if I can just stop this one behavior, then things will go better. If I could just stop that, it'd be better. But that's not what the Bible prescribes here. It's putting off and putting on. We must replace that unwanted behavior with the greater thing. Let's read Colossians 3, 10 through 11. And I'll continue actually in verse 9 because it's mid-thought. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, after the image of God. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Slythian. (laughs) I have been reading Harry Potter to my kids a bunch. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. And then he says this, how amazing is this? But Christ is all and in all. It does not get more epic than that. It kind of sounds familiar to something we say around here all the time. Christ is all and in all. Now this renewal is such good news for me. It's good news for you. You are being renewed into the image of your creator day by day by day because of Jesus's faithfulness and not yours. Praise God for that. Now this list that he gives of Slytherins and Hufflepuffs, (laughs) you you could rewrite that list this way. In the kingdom of God, there is no racial, pious, societal, or economic markers that elevate or lower anyone. But Christ is everything and in everyone. That's a massive statement. Doesn't that change the way that you interact with anyone else? If Christ is in everyone, doesn't that change the way you interact with them? And since that's true, since Jesus is everything and in everything, here's what he says in verses 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Notice how the Bible is speaking to you, Christian. You are chosen. God just doesn't want you in because you tried so hard and he's like, all right, fine, you can, fine, you can be in the club, come on. No, you are chosen. He picked you out. You are holy and beloved. So put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and there it is, and be thankful. Be thankful. So here is our list from Paul of the practices to be continually putting on. It's the same language. It's not put it on once. It's put it on and keep putting it on in the future as God's chosen people. Again, this is worth some careful consideration this week. Now, one of the things I like to do in studying is read a few different translations just to see how some some Greek scholars would interpret this differently. And one of the ones that I go to over and over because I think he's a kindred spirit of me is uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message. He's a poet. He, he writes really beautifully. I wouldn't necessarily study doctrine from it, but what he's trying to do is give you a fresh way of, of interpreting this. So here's what he says for verses 12 through 14. So, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you, Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered. I love this one. Content with second place. Quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Isn't that helpful? 
as always, when we're told to forgive, it is tied to the forgiveness of God that he's given us, which is a scary thought because forgiveness is hard. It's hard. In my few years now as a pastor, forgiveness is one of the hardest things to counsel. It feels too bold for me to look at the brokenness that exists between friends or husband and wife and say, you have to forgive. I mean, it, it feels like something I, I shouldn't say, but this is a command here in Scripture. This isn't a, a request or a question. It's a command for Christians. I've seen relationships restored and changed through what seems like a simple act of forgiveness. And by the way, it's almost never deserved by the person who's receiving the forgiveness. It's never deserved, but it's given anyway. And I've seen relationships fall apart with one or more parties saying, I just can't forgive that. I can't do it. Now, to be clear, Paul has a church community in mind with the kind of differences, uh, economic, political, the, the list that he gives here, social, economical, racial differences. He's saying, if anyone offends you, as much as it's up to you, forgive. Now, verses like this have been used to justify abuse by saying, you have to forgive me. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's not talking about verbal, emotional, or physical abuse. And I'll say this. This is what I've, I've said to um, the couples that I've worked with. Forgiveness does not have to equal reconciliation. There can be consequences of the sin. Remember, I talked about the passive wrath of God. There can be consequences to that sin, which means I might struggle to trust. There might be steps that we need to take to be reconciled. But my call to forgive is the same. To forgive is to absorb the wrong done and expect no payback. I might still be sad, but I'm going to put off a wrathful response and put on peace. Reminding us today of God's command here to forgive is a big thing to ask, but it's a command, not an ask. If you've done much work in therapy or, or reading about forgiveness, the prisoner in an unforgiveness situation is the one who refuses to forgive. They're the ones who hold the weight of that and are freed by forgiving. And notice there's no process Paul describes here. It's not when the other person has shown you three times that they really mean it. No, it's if anyone's offending you, as much as it's up to you, forgive them. Why? They don't deserve it. Well, neither do we. But God forgave us. We didn't have to ask for it. We didn't, we didn't apologize. He gave forgiveness first. I do think apologies are important. I say that. But isn't that what God in Christ has done for us? We didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it now. But he gives it freely and has given it freely. Praise God for that. Now he says, put on love. Above all, put on love. This is one of those generic terms for love. But we might bring some meaning into this that, that, that Paul probably didn't have in mind here. Remember, when the Bible uses that word, it assumes a different meaning. This isn't a hallmark kind of feeling love, but a sacrificing for the good of others kind of love. Like the message said, a content with second place kind of love. Not a feeling, but an action. That kind of love that creates what it talks about later as that perfect harmony, that peace that we want desperately to see in the world. It started with Jesus, and it continues, it continues with you and I. Church, remember, we are the light of the world. That's what the Bible talks about us as, the light of the world, that people see the way that the church responds in times of trial, suffering, they see how we forgive each other. They see how we love each other. We are the light of the world. Let's go be the light. Let's be the light. Those little moments that matter so much that you never know who's watching at work, at home, out and about, when we're engaging on social media, remembering that Christ is all and in all. And that matters. Let's read verse 15 again. There's something in there I don't want us to miss. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. That ruling in your heart is a nod to the idolatry language earlier. We must replace the idols of our heart with the peace of God, letting it rule instead. Now, I haven't heard as much about this more recently, but maybe I'm just out of the loop. But I remember a year ago hearing a lot about this like cultivating gratefulness movement. And it, usually when I would hear about it, it didn't really include God. But I think that's what's being talked about here. I think that for the Christian, cultivating thankfulness is a really good thing. And why wouldn't we? If Christ is indeed all and in all, then we should be seeking to see him in everything. And when we do, let it make us thankful. Thankful. One of the times I was practicing um, Sabbath rest with my family, where we intentionally put away work, acknowledging that the work that there is to do will never end. I could work my face off and still have more to do. So you intentionally rest because you're not a slave to work, right? You rest. Okay, now what I do is when we say we're going to go to the park, we're going to walk to the park, I'm very like weird about it. We have to, the goal is to get to the park. We don't have time to slow down and like look at flowers and stuff. We're getting to the park. We don't want to look at that grass. We got to get over to this grass and see that. That's what we're doing. So one time I'm walking with my daughter, she was five at the time, and she wanted to look at this. It was a weed. It was just a weed. But it was like this little flower, and initially I'm like, come on, we don't have time for that. But I stopped, and I'm so glad I did. I stopped, and I stooped down, and I looked at it, and I was thankful. I was thankful that God used her to show me you're missing the point if you think Sabbath is about get from here to get to there as quick as you can, efficiently. You're missing it. Slow down. Take the time to see Christ in all, in everything, and let it make you thankful. Paul sums this section up for us in 16 and 17 um, like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's that thankfulness thing again. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So although Paul starts with the word let here, we need to know that he is writing with as much force as he's written everything else so far. So it's not a passive, allow this to happen. It's an active, no, make this happen. Make this a reality. More active than passive. So let's slice up that first line. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ. The word of Christ. Christ is himself called the word, which is fascinating to ponder. He means the word we heard today. The word you hear every time you come the word that you read on your own. Make that dwell in you richly. Make it live in you. Make it take up residence in you on the throne of your heart and with interest, with fruit, with real change. You know, I sometimes think that uh, James chapter 1 was written just for me and that everyone else just gets to also read it. But growing up in the church has made me really good at hearing things and then just sort of moving on and kind of forgetting about it and, all right, what's next? What's for lunch? But here's what it says, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, looks at it, then goes away and once forgets what he was like. To make the word of Christ dwell in us richly is to take it, mull it over, prayerfully engage with it long after this hour of church is done, after this sermon's over. How? How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us that list right here. 
by teaching one another, reminding each other, by even correcting each other. Now remember, before you correct, we've already put on the robe of love, right? So it's love, but correcting one another when needed, by singing together, by being thankful to God. Paul's been slowly building this idea of a community in mind throughout this text. When he begins listing ways to put on the new self, they all have to do with actions towards others. So clearly, putting on the new self is to be done in the context of a loving community of believers. These rhythms of teaching, correcting, singing, thankfulness all happen this week, and I'm always thankful for the reminder of why we do this rhythm every week. It matters because of passages like this. This is what God wants for his people. But it also happens in small groups. Our communities communities and gatherings outside of that, is it perfect? No. If you've been in a community group longer than a minute, you know they're not perfect because we're all weirdos. We just are. We sin. We get weird. It's fine. But just because it's weird and just because it's hard doesn't mean we can give up on it. We need the accountability and the sharpening that happens in these spaces. And we need to be faithful to stick it out through thick and thin. And what we'll find when we push through is the strength that we need to do the work of putting off and putting on over and over, seeking after that perfect harmony and peace of Christ in the world. Now, one last thought. This text can't be simply about our behavior modification. I think that's one part of this that's certainly true. Our behavior matters. Our purity matters. God cares about the purity of his bride, his church. But I think it's fair more than just our behavior to apply this to our identities. For those who are in Christ, to remember you're not this. Put that off. You are this. Put on Christ. Christ's sinless, perfect life was given for you on the cross. Now think about this. When he was raised, there's this funny detail that when he was raised, he took his robes and he folded them. Now stained with your sin and mine, he folded those, placed them in the tomb, and they stayed there. He put those off for us, for himself, once and for all. They are in the tomb to remain there. And when he walked out, he walked out in the perfect spotless robe of the new creation inaugurating a new kingdom and avoiding that righteous and perfect wrath of God, giving you and I that same access through himself. It's free, but it must be put on, putting off your old self. Now, if you want to know more about how to take that first step, if you've not done that, if this is news to you, we would love to pray with you. If you want to know more about how to do that, or you feel like you've strayed again, I'd, I've been putting on the old self for too long. I don't know what to do. Come pray with us. Come pray with us. And remember that our identities are new. You are no longer who you were before Christ. No longer. However lost, you are no longer that in Christ. You are a new creation. In Christ, you and I are given a new identity. And praise God for that. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you in now to speak to us, to mold us, to shape us. And God, maybe we're sitting here going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do during this time. Just don't overthink it. Just pray. Invite the Spirit in. And maybe it doesn't happen right now. Maybe it's later this week in the shower. You have some revelation about something. But just in this space, Spirit, we invite you in. Show us, Lord, the ways that we have put on the old self and have put off the new. We have undone the work that you did, God. Embracing our old way, our old sin nature, our old identity, claiming that to be true when it's not anymore. God, we confess that to you and invite you, Spirit, to mold us and shape us once again into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. 
after hearing God's word, we as a church respond. We do that in a few ways. One, we take communion. Now, consider communion for a moment. You're going to be holding the bread, which symbolizes the body of Jesus. Think about that bread, what it took to be in that shape with you. It was cut. It was beaten. It was shaped. It was molded. It was, it was crushed to make that for you. His, wine, his blood signified by the wine or juice, his blood that was freely given for us. So you consider communion, you come up together, but at once you're at your seat, take it when you're ready. Take a moment to pause and consider what Jesus has done for you and what the Holy Spirit might bring to mind. In addition to taking communion, we sing together. And it's important to sing because God is good. God is good. And this work that he did for us is worthy of our praise. We get ourselves out of the center of our universe and we put God right back where he belongs. We also give during this time. There's boxes in the back you can give to or you can give online. And we pray. So I'll say, if you want to come up for prayer, there is nobody here that's taking a list of, oh, did you see so-and-so came up for prayer? That's, that's not how this works. We need each other. And maybe there's something that God is speaking to you that we can simply pray with you for. There's no shame. There's no judgment. We, we love you and we love God and we just want to pray with you. So come up and pray if you like. Um, but we're going to do that now. And so let's uh, take communion when you're ready.
with all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything and I will adore you.
Amen. Well, I can think of no better sending verse than what Paul gave to us in our text today. So I'm going to read verses 16 and 17 again. Church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, church, in word or deed, do everything this week in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Go in peace. Go live all of life all for Jesus. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week.